This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Familiar Strangers, where I share stories about people who went missing and then months or even years later were discovered alive. But these stories have a twist in that in each one, there's a question if the person discovered is really the missing person or an imposter. Today's episode features a subject that I've been wanting to research for a long time. I finally found a way to include it in the series, but because there are so many twists and turns to this case, as well as a very complex backstory, I will, for the second time this month, cover one case in two separate episodes. For those of you who are Patreon members, you won't have to wait a whole week to listen to part two. Patreon members get episodes early and ad-free as a thank you for being super fans and pledging to support the show. I'll give you information on how you can join at the end of the episode. But let's launch into this week's episode. One of the most well-known and interesting cases of a person re-emerging years after their disappearance is rooted in an historical case from the early 20th century. The Romanovs, Russia's imperial family, were rumored to have been executed in a basement room in a remote Russian town. But when no bodies were recovered after this alleged mass execution, rumors began to grow that some or all of the Romanovs had escaped and were either being secretly held prisoners or had gone into hiding for their own safety. Before long, there were no shortage of sightings of various Romanov family members, and even some who came forward who claimed to be one of the Tsar's children. Most were quickly dismissed as opportunists or hoaxers, but there was one claimant, a woman purporting to be the Tsar's youngest daughter, Anastasia, that wasn't so easily dismissed. Many would believe her to be the true Grand Duchess Anastasia Romanov, while others expressed doubts. It's a fascinating mystery that wasn't solved for decades, and I will bring that story to you. First, I will need to give you a bit of the backstory on this royal family. But not to worry, this will not be some dry history lesson. The story of the Romanovs is filled with intrigue, rumors of scandal, and even one high-profile murder. You will not want to skip this episode. This is another installment of the series Familiar Strangers, Anastasia Romanov. Just one note before we begin. I do not speak Russian or German, or really any other language fluently, so I've done my best to pronounce place names as well as the names of the subjects in this episode as best I can. However, I will often be using the Americanized version of these names, which are more familiar to me. I apologize in advance for any mispronunciations. Tsar Nicholas II and Tsarina Alexandra Feodorovna Romanov didn't know they would be the last sovereigns of Russia when Nicholas took the throne in November of 1894. Nicholas's father, Alexander III, had taken ill and died unexpectedly at the age of 46. Nicholas and Alexandra had only been engaged a few months when he was thrust into the role of Tsar or Emperor of Russia. Only 26 years old and terrified at the prospect of such a huge responsibility, he moved up the date of their wedding and the couple took their vows less than a month after Alexander III's death. Nicholas counted on Alexandra's love and support to guide him and give him confidence, and he wanted her by his side when he was crowned. Empress Alexandra would always be influential in Nicholas's life and reign. He often sought her counsel and took her suggestions when making decisions. This would be one of the factors that led to the downfall of the Romanovs. Nicholas and Alexander were related by blood and marriage to the royal houses of Great Britain, Denmark, Romania, Germany, Spain, and Greece. Alexandra Feodorovna was born Princess Alex of Hesse, a favorite granddaughter to Queen Victoria of England. She took the name Alexandra after converting to the Russian Orthodox Church. Initially reluctant to convert, Alexandra became deeply committed to the faith, especially after she and Nicholas began having children. As soon as Nicholas became the Tsar, he became the wealthiest and most powerful monarch in the world. The territory he ruled over encompassed one-sixth of the land surface of the globe. The Romanovs owned more than 30 palaces. As the 18th ruler of the Romanov dynasty, Nicholas II came from a long line of powerful monarchs 
including Catherine the Great and Peter the Great. Both Nicholas and Alexandra held the belief that, as monarchs, they had been ordained by God to rule, while other countries began embracing the idea of elected assemblies being given governing powers, Nicholas did not. It was his belief that, as emperor, he alone should hold power. Alexandra agreed with her husband and supported him completely. One great responsibility of a monarch is to provide an heir to the throne, ideally a male child. Nicholas and Alexandra began right away to start their family. The year following their marriage, they had their first child, a girl they named Olga. They would have five children in total, each two years apart. In 1897, their second daughter, Tatiana, was born. Next came the third daughter, Maria. Surely, the Tsar and Tsarina thought, their next child would be the long-awaited male heir. But they were sorely disappointed when their fourth daughter, Anastasia, was born in 1901. It wasn't until their fifth and final child that Alexandra finally gave birth to a son. There was much rejoicing when Tsarevich Alexei Nikolaevich was born in 1904. Six weeks later, they discovered that Alexei had been born with a genetic disorder, hemophilia. Hemophilia is a condition that interferes with the body's ability to form blood clots. As a result, even minor injuries can lead to life-threatening blood loss. Alexei had inherited this condition through his mother's bloodline. Many of the women in her family were carriers of the gene, including Alexandra's grandmother, Queen Victoria. Alexei suffered from frequent illnesses due to the condition. As a precaution against injury, the Tsarevich was looked after by two Navy men who were his constant companions. The imperial family kept Alexei's condition a secret from the public and even most of their extended family. Only a small number of close family members were privy to the secret. Alexandra especially worried over the health of her son. Feeling responsible, as it was through her that Alexei inherited the condition, she spent much of her life praying and seeking every possible remedy for his illness. However, there was no cure for hemophilia, and Alexei's health was often fragile. Overall, Alexei and his sisters lived a happy and privileged life. Growing up in the Grand Peterhof Palace in St. Petersburg, the Tsarevich and four grand duchesses were fabulously wealthy. However, Nicholas and Alexandra were determined that their children would not grow up spoiled. Among opulent surroundings, the Romanovs nevertheless lived simply. The children were made to sleep on cots without pillows. Even with a palace staff of hundreds, they were expected to do chores including making their own beds and keeping their rooms tidy. The Romanov children were also expected to treat the palace staff and servants with kindness and respect. Their servants became close to them, like family, and Alexandra insisted they call the children by their given names, not their titles, so that they would remain humble. The four grand duchesses, or grand princesses, as more precisely translated, but commonly called the former in English, were all said to be polite, kind, and pleasant. But their personalities were all very unique from one another. Olga, the oldest, was described as the most stubborn and had a tendency towards moroseness like her father. Tatiana was the daughter closest to her mother, and like Alexandra, had a natural elegance. She was called the governess by her siblings, as she was most often second in charge to keep the children in line. Marie was often described as the most beautiful of the grand duchesses. She was also the most quiet and modest. Her most fervent wish was to have a home and children of her own someday. And Anastasia, the youngest Romanov daughter, was described as pretty with a tendency to become plump, as she was overly fond of sweets. She had dark blonde hair like her sister's, and her gray-blue eyes often flashed a mischievous grin, according to the palace staff. Anastasia loved to play pranks on the staff, servants, and her siblings. She found it humorous to hide from her tutors, sometimes by climbing trees, and then refusing to come down after she was discovered. Anastasia did not take well to her studies. She was intelligent, but had little patience for schoolwork. Instead of staying focused on her lessons, she would become distracted and chatter away while her tutors tried to provide instruction. Sometimes she did this as a way to delay or even circumvent her lessons. As a result, she would always be a poor speller, and her written diaries and letters reflect this. Anastasia was required to learn many languages and had a working knowledge of several, including Russian, of course, as well as English, French, and German. She spoke Russian with her father, siblings, the palace staff, and servants, but she would speak English with her mother from the time she first began to talk. 
Even so, neither Anastasia nor her siblings spoke English very well, and a tutor would be hired to work with them. Anastasia was closest to her sister Maria, who was just two years her senior. They shared a room, spent most of their time together, and even dressed alike. They were often referred to as the little pair by the family and staff. The two oldest girls, Olga and Tatiana, were similarly called the big pair. On a personal note, I found this very sweet and familiar. My aunt had six daughters. She had no sons. They were all born in quick succession. There were a few extra years between the three oldest and the three youngest. We always referred to our three oldest cousins as the big ones, and the three younger sisters were the little ones. Anastasia had a couple of challenges that plagued her throughout her life. The first was her height. She was always the shortest in her family, a fact that she hated. Fully grown, she would only reach five feet in height. Other challenges she faced were related to her health. Consanguinity, royal intermarriage, or inbreeding, whatever term you want to use, all refer to the prevalence of royal families marrying close family members, such as first cousins, to keep the royal line of succession within family bloodlines. This practice also led to an increased risk of genetic abnormalities, such as hemophilia, as I mentioned earlier, but also other health conditions. Anastasia suffered from both weak back muscles, which may have contributed to her short stature, as well as painful bunions on her feet that caused her to exhibit an unusual gait. The Romanov children, while being raised to live simply, nevertheless enjoyed the trappings of wealth and power as afforded by their royal upbringing. They vacationed on board the royal yacht in the Crimean Sea, traveled around Russia and northern Europe, spending time at one opulent Romanov palace or another, and enjoyed time at parties, balls, and holiday family gatherings in the palaces of their royal grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins. Alexandra made sure her children spent time performing charitable works, like visiting hospital patients. Every year, they held a charity bazaar to raise funds for the hospital. The Grand Duchesses provided small items to sell that they had made themselves, like painted vases, needlework, and drawings and paintings. By all accounts, they were kind, polite, curious, and lively children. Nicholas II inherited decades of unrest in Russia due to the oppression of the lower classes. Low wages, unsafe working conditions, crowded housing in cities where people had migrated to work factory jobs, all contributed to the discontent of the people. In addition, as the citizens, once separated in rural areas and on farms, began living and working in close proximity to one another, they began sharing these common complaints with their neighbors and co-workers. It wasn't long before they banded together to protest their living and economic conditions and revolt against the Tsarist regime. One more side note. I love history, but I'll admit that I am no expert in Russian history, although I do find it fascinating. So some of the political details I'll share in this episode should be considered a very watered-down Cliff Notes edition of Russian history, so bear with me. The first Russian Revolution in 1905 was beset by worker strikes, unrest in rural villages and cities alike, and mutinies by the military. Animosity toward Tsar Nicholas II increased as a result of an event that came to be known as Bloody Sunday. A group of unarmed protesters, led by a Russian Orthodox priest, was fired upon by Imperial Guard soldiers as they approached the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg to present a petition to the Tsar. Approximately 1,000 citizens were killed or injured. The result was days of rioting and looting. Although Nicholas II had not been present on the day of the incident and had not given the order for his guards to shoot, he was nevertheless held responsible by the people. A once popular monarch, the Tsar and his complete autocratic rule were now bitterly criticized. The people had lost faith in Nicholas II, and the oft-repeated comment by his former supporters became, quote, we no longer have a Tsar, unquote. The door had been opened for what would become the final rebellion against the Romanovs. It would lead to their downfall a mere dozen years later. While her children grew, Empress Alexandra continued to lose sleep over her son, the Tsarevich Alexei. Alexei had several serious bouts with his health due to his hemophiliac condition. In 2009, almost a century after his death, DNA testing would determine that Alexei had suffered from a rare form of the disease, hemophilia B. His condition was chronic and would cause the boy to become increasingly debilitated throughout his life. With each episode of the illness that the Tsarevich experienced, Alexandra became more desperate to find a cure for her son. 
Not only was she terrified at the possibility of losing her child whom she loved, but he was also the heir to the throne. As such, Alexei surviving until maturity was important to the stability of the Romanov dynasty. How could it be, the Empress must have wondered incredulously, that with all the wealth and power they possessed, a cure for her son's illness could not be obtained? Nicholas and Alexandra never stopped seeking possible remedies. Before marrying, Alexandra had converted to her husband's Russian Orthodox faith. She became a devout follower of the religion and believed in the power of prayer. She prayed faithfully for her son to be healed, but Alexei's condition worsened with each incident. Then in the spring of 1907, Alexei became seriously ill, suffering from an internal hemorrhage. Alexandra summoned a self-proclaimed holy man who she and the emperor had befriended. Due to their belief in his ability to heal Alexei through spiritual power, Grigory Rasputin would wield great influence with the Tsar and Tsarina, which would ultimately put his life in danger. Grigory Ifumovich Vasputin was born in the small Siberian village of Pokroskoya in 1869. His father, also named Grigory, was a peasant farmer and a church elder. He and Rasputin's mother, Feodosia, had nine children, only two of which lived beyond early childhood. There is not much known about Rasputin's childhood, but like most living in Russian peasant villages at that time, life was a struggle and most children worked alongside their parents to eke out a living. Rasputin was probably uneducated, and it's believed he remained illiterate until he was an adult. A bit more is known about his teenage and young adult years, when Rasputin got into some minor trouble in Pokorskoya. It is said that he was caught drinking, was involved in some petty theft, and generally displayed a disrespectful attitude towards local authority figures. Not a good look for the son of a church elder, but you know how pastor's kids can be. Or at least that's the stereotype, right? Later, when Rasputin became a well-known figure, more stories would be told about his past that were exaggerated. He was rumored to have been a horse thief and had also been accused of rape. The story went that this caused him to be expelled from the village. However, those accounts would later be debunked. In 1886, Rasputin traveled to Abalak, Russia, and met a peasant girl named Paskovia Dubrovina. They fell in love and married the following year, when he was just 18 years old. Rasputin's bride would remain devoted to him throughout his life. Later, when he was gone for long periods of time traveling around the country, Paskovia would remain behind in the village with their children. They would have seven children, three of which survived to adulthood. Dmitri, born in 1895, Maria in 1898, and Varvara in 1900. Rasputin had been raised in the Russian Orthodox Church, and as a young man, he'd begun taking his faith seriously. He went on a few pilgrimages as a young man, but it was at the age of 28, after experiencing what he described as a profound religious awakening, that Rasputin committed his life to a spiritual calling. He left his home, pregnant wife, and infant son to pursue the life of Astronik, which loosely translates to a spiritual wanderer or pilgrim. In 1897, his travels took him to the St. Nicholas Monastery. There he studied for several months under an elder named Makari. It's believed that at this time, Rasputin learned to read and write. He eventually left the monastery and later voiced his criticism of monks and the monastic life. He accused the monks of engaging in homosexuality, which he disapproved of. He also rejected the life of a monk as too tightly controlled by the church. Rasputin briefly returned to his family in Pokrovskoya, but soon left once more to live as a wandering pilgrim. By now, Rasputin had vowed to abstain from alcohol, had become a vegetarian, and spent hours dedicated to prayer. He spent the next two years visiting holy sites and studying under various spiritual teachers. Rasputin began to cobble together his own version of holy teachings and was asked to share these with others who were seeking enlightenment. He began to gain followers who believed him to be a holy man and wise spiritual teacher. On one trip back to his village, Rasputin built a chapel in the cellar of his father's home where he held secret prayer meetings. Rasputin had not been ordained as a priest in the Orthodox Church, and the village priests didn't take too kindly at what they classified as the teaching of false doctrine. It's possible that these critics also began to float rumors about other, more scandalous practices Rasputin was said to be engaged in, or perhaps there was some truth to these claims. Either way, stories of Rasputin and his followers engaging in sexual orgies, performing self-flagellation, 
and partaking in mind-altering substances began to circulate. Some accused Rasputin of being a follower of the Klisti, an underground religious sect that practiced asceticism and believed in attaining divine grace through ecstatic rituals, hence the orgies. However, later biographers of Rasputin would doubt these accounts, and his daughter would also say that her father had never been a Klist, although he had investigated their beliefs. Rasputin was perfectly positioned to take advantage of what became an increased interest in spirituality by the middle and upper classes in the early 1900s. At that time, people were seeking more than the traditional rote religious teachings that the church provided. They were interested in a more personal experience and a goal of true spiritual enlightenment. Rasputin and other teachers like him filled this need. From 1904 to 1905, Rasputin traveled within Siberia, and there his reputation as a holy man grew. Even while he was said to be particularly gifted at helping others resolve spiritual crises, the rumors of Rasputin engaging in sexual relations with his female followers continued. By this time, Rasputin had even gained admirers inside the Orthodox Church. His reputation as a mystic and healer eventually opened up doors for him, and by 1905, he was being introduced to important church leaders, as well as members of St. Petersburg's High Society. Once inside the inner circle of society, Rasputin's charm and appeal as a spiritual guru saw him quickly forming friendships with members of Russia's aristocracy. The first of these was with Princesses Melitza and Anastasia of Montenegro. The princesses were married to two of Tsar Nicholas's cousin, Grand Duke Peter Nikolovich, and Prince George Maximilianovich Romanowski. Through them, Rasputin was introduced to Tsar Nicholas II in 1905. The Tsar wrote an account of his first meeting with Rasputin on November 1, 1905. The meeting took place at the Peterhof Palace, and the Tsar described Rasputin as, quote, a man of God. Soon after this meeting, Rasputin was called back home to Pokroskoya. He would not return to St. Petersburg until July of 1906. Nicholas had been impressed with the holy man and had spoken to his wife about him. The month that Rasputin returned to the city, he was invited to meet the empress. A friendship grew between Nicholas, Alexandra, and Rasputin, and later that fall, they introduced him to their children. Rasputin would end up becoming a very important friend to Alexandra. The empress had become deeply religious, and she now looked to Rasputin for spiritual guidance. Alexandra also believed that Rasputin possessed the power to heal through prayer. She believed his years spent as a pilgrim and spiritual seeker had brought him especially close to God. As a result, it was her opinion that the holy man's prayers and petitions to God were given special favor. Alexandra hoped that through Rasputin, her prayers for the health of her son and a cure for his illness would finally be heard. In the spring of 1907, just months after Rasputin became acquainted with the Tsar's children, Alexandra sent an urgent plea for him to come to the palace. Alexei had suffered an internal hemorrhage and was very ill. Rasputin arrived and prayed over the Tsarevich. The next morning, the little boy was completely recovered. Alexandra was beyond grateful to Rasputin and, from then on, was completely convinced of his ability to heal. He became a frequent visitor to the palace whenever he was in St. Petersburg and grew even closer to the family. In the summer of 1912, when Alexei was eight years old, he suffered a hematoma after a rough carriage ride. An internal hemorrhage in his thigh and groin area quickly grew serious. The Tsarevich was in severe pain with a high fever and close to death, and Empress Alexandra was losing hope. Rasputin was in Siberia at that time, and she quickly dispatched a telegram to him pleading for him to pray for Alexei. Rasputin sent back word, assuring the Empress, quote, God has seen your tears and heard your prayers. Do not grieve. The little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much, unquote. The next day, Alexei's condition was improved, and by the next, the bleeding had stopped. Alexandra gave all the credit for her son's complete recovery to Rasputin's prayers. Perhaps it was a miracle, or perhaps, some speculate, it was heeding Rasputin's advice to stop additional treatments on the boy that helped. This may have given Alexei's body time to rest and recover. Or maybe it was Alexandra and Alexei's belief in Rasputin's words that reduced their stress and contributed to his healing. No matter what actually helped Alexei to be healed, Alexandra was completely convinced it was Rasputin who had performed a miracle. 
The czar called Rasputin to St. Petersburg and thanked him by giving him a position at court. Rasputin was appointed as the official court lamplighter. His duty was to keep the lamps lit in front of the religious icons in the palace. He now had even more access to the imperial family as a member of the court. By all accounts, the empress and the grand duchesses treated Rasputin as a friend and as close as a family member. They spent time with him talking and sharing confidences and asking his advice on one matter or another. The empress especially sought out his counsel and followed whatever advice he gave. Others, though, thought Rasputin was becoming too familiar with the family, especially the grand duchesses who were young ladies between the ages of 11 and 17 at this time. One of the children's governesses became concerned when she saw that Rasputin was permitted to access the girls' rooms, even at bedtime when they were dressed in their nightgowns. She found it improper, and when the empress dismissed her concerns, she reported them to the czar. Nicholas had a talk with Rasputin, but simply advised him to avoid going into the children's rooms from then on. But Rasputin had grown overly comfortable in the palace, it seems, and continued to be a constant presence, often in the company of the empress and her daughters. The governess began shooing Rasputin out of the children's wing of the palace until Alexandra grew angry at her interference and fired her from her position. Angry at her dismissal, and still concerned at what she considered to be the inappropriate behavior of Rasputin, the governess reported these incidents to other members of the Romanov family. She told Nicholas's sister, Grand Duchess Xenia Alexandrovna, that Rasputin was visiting the girls in their room, and she had witnessed him talking to them while they prepared for bed. She also reported seeing him, quote, hug and pat them, unquote. When reports of this behavior leaked to the public, it added to suspicions some had already voiced about Rasputin's influence over the royal family. Some accused him of exerting political influence over the Tsar through Alexandra. The report of alleged inappropriate behavior with the Tsar's young daughters was just the last straw in a long list of accusations made against Rasputin over the years and would lead to a plot against his life. Rasputin had been a controversial figure from the time he first became known as a self-proclaimed holy man in St. Petersburg. His influence in Tsar Nicholas's court was common knowledge after he was credited with healing the Tsarevich in 1907. That same year, leaders of the Russian Orthodox Church began an inquest into Rasputin's teachings. They accused him of religious heresy and spreading false doctrine. During this time, other accusations began to emerge. Some accused him of having an affair with the Empress. While Nicholas had been popular with the people at one time, Alexandra had always been viewed with suspicion. Alexandra was not Russian, but hailed from the German royal line who ruled the Duchy of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. The Russian people also saw her as dour and too serious. These things had always made Alexandra an easy target for criticism. Her relationship with Rasputin did nothing to help her reputation among her subjects, and some were easily persuaded that something untoward between her and Rasputin was taking place. Rumors of Rasputin's inappropriateness with the royal family began around 1910. Another former governess had accused Rasputin of rape that year, reporting this to the empress. Alexander refused to believe the woman, saying, quote, everything Rasputin does is holy, unquote. Nicholas had also been warned about giving Rasputin too much power. The prime minister in St. Petersburg had given the warning, but Nicholas had ignored him. By 1913, when the governess began speaking out about Rasputin's familiarness with the Grand Duchesses, St. Petersburg's aristocracy began to openly criticize Nicholas and Alexandra's friendship with him. The country's discontent with the Romanovs would grow after Russia entered the First World War. On June 28, 1914, Archduke Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary and his wife were assassinated in Sarajevo, sparking the beginning of World War I. On August 1st of that year, Germany declared war on Russia in support of Austria-Hungary. The war dragged on, and in 1915, Nicholas personally assumed command over the Russian army, something the Russian government had advised him against. The Russian army was sustaining huge losses, and now that Nicholas was commanding the troops, these losses were placed squarely on his shoulders. The following year, Alexandra, on the advice of Rasputin, convinced her husband to remove and replace a succession of government ministers. This resulted in crippling the government, which was especially disruptive during a time of war. When it was discovered that Rasputin had encouraged these changes, the people were outraged. 
Anger was also directed at Rasputin for his meddling in political affairs. The Grand Duchesses were also now dragged by the public. After rumors emerged that Rasputin was taking liberties with her daughters with her consent, pornographic cartoons circulated depicting Rasputin with the Empress and Grand Duchesses. The Romanov daughters had always been perceived as innocent and held up as the ideal of young womanhood of the era. In fact, the four Romanov girls had lived very sheltered lives and behaved more childlike than their chronological ages would suggest. Even into their teens, they played childlike games and spent time enacting make-believe stories to entertain themselves. The Grand Duchesses were rarely seen in public, especially after 1905, when strikes and unrest plagued the city. There had been several attempts to assassinate Nicholas II, and in response to these threats to him and his family, Nicholas had moved them away from St. Petersburg to the Alexander Palace at Sarkoya Selo, about 15 miles south of the city. There, the girls became even more isolated. They were entering their teens, but had no friends or social life outside of the palace. They were very close to one another and also formed close bonds with the servants and court members. One of the only reprieves away from court was to visit their aunt, Grand Duchess Olga Alexandrovna, in St. Petersburg. She was the youngest of Nicholas II's sisters and enjoyed having the girls visit. She always provided plenty of entertainment for the girls, planning dances and teas for them. The sons and daughters of aristocratic families and young military officers were invited as guests. This was almost the only social life the girls experienced outside of their family, and they looked forward to it excitedly. Their aunt would also take the girls to have lunch with their grandmother, Marie Feodorovna, while they were in St. Petersburg. After the 1905 revolution, Nicholas II had made an effort to appease the people by agreeing to establish the State Duma, or Legislative Assembly. The Tsar was able to keep his rule, although some still sought to abolish the autocracy. Nicholas was warned by his advisors that allowing Rasputin, seen as a charlatan and a sexual predator, to have influence over him would give his enemies just one more excuse to drum up opposition against him. But both the Tsar and Alexandra remained stubbornly loyal to Rasputin. Russian nobles also suspected, somewhat correctly, that Rasputin was urging the Tsar to fight to hold on to the autocracy. A group of these nobles decided that the only way to neutralize Rasputin as a threat was to eliminate him. The assassination of Rasputin was plotted by a group of Russian aristocrats connected to the royal family. The plot against Rasputin would be carried out by Prince Felix Yusupov, the husband of Tsar Nicholas's niece, Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, Nicholas's first cousin, and a member of the Duma, Vladimir Purushkovich. Purushkovich had warned Nicholas about giving Rasputin too much power. He'd also made a speech in the Duma, calling Rasputin a threat to the empire. Quote, the Tsar's ministers who have been turned into marionettes, marionettes whose threads have been taken firmly in hand by Rasputin and the Empress Alexandra Fyodorovna, the evil genius of Russia and the Tsarina, who has remained a German on the Russian throne and alien to the country and its people, unquote. In December 1916, Rasputin was lured to the home of Prince Yusupov at the Moika Palace. Once there, he was taken into a basement room and shot three times once in the head at close range. Later, Yusupov would give a bizarre account of the murder of Rasputin. He said on the night of December 30th, shortly after midnight, Rasputin arrived at the palace. Once there, small talk was made, and Rasputin was offered tea and cakes, which he accepted. The cakes had been laced with cyanide, according to Prince Yusupov. So the prince was astonished when, after consuming the poison, Rasputin was not in the least affected. After finishing the cakes, he asked for wine to drink. The wine he was given had also been poisoned. Rasputin drank three glasses, Yusupov reported, but still appeared to suffer no ill effects. Their poisoning plan unsuccessful, Yusupov then retrieved a gun. The prince said he pointed it at Rasputin and told him to, quote, look at the crucifix and say a prayer, unquote. He then shot him once in the chest. One of the other men dressed himself in Rasputin's coat and hat. He was driven by the other two to Rasputin's apartment, where he was dropped off to make it appear that the holy man had arrived home safely. I suppose this was because Rasputin may have told others who he was meeting that night. The three men then returned to the palace and went to the basement where they'd left Rasputin's body. But astonishingly, as they entered the room, 
Rasputin leapt up and attacked Yusupov. The prince was able to break free and run upstairs. Rasputin followed him and was able to make it as far as the courtyard before Perushkovet shot him twice more. The men then wrapped Rasputin's body in a cloth and drove to the Petrovsky Bridge, where they dropped it into the water. His body was found trapped under the ice in the river on January 1st. The autopsy would conclude that Rasputin had been shot three times and suffered many other injuries to his body, although it was unknown if this had happened after being thrown into the river or before. The lack of water found in his lungs determined that he'd been dead before he went into the water. There was no evidence of poison found in his body. I know, weird, right? Rasputin was buried in Sarkoya Selo near the Tsar's palace on January 2nd. The empress was devastated by his loss. Only the imperial family and a few of their friends were invited to attend the funeral. Rasputin's wife and children were not invited. However, his daughters were extended an invitation to meet with the imperial family after the funeral. Nicholas and Alexandra planned to build a church over Rasputin's grave. But they would not live long enough to carry out that plan. Which brings us to the next part of the story, the 1917 Russian Revolution and the assassination of the Romanovs. After the murder of Rasputin, both Nicholas and Alexandra were certain that the violent death of the man they considered holy and their spiritual mentor portended terrible things to come for them and their family. Even so, they still refused to cooperate with the nobles, who once having removed Rasputin's influence with the Tsar, believed he would now cooperate and give up absolute rule and allow more progressive reforms to take hold. Instead, Nicholas and Alexandra remained determined to hold on to power. February of 1917 saw the Empress and her children holed up in the Alexander Palace while riots and violence broke out in the city. Nicholas, in the meantime, was in Mogilev, the headquarters of the Russian Imperial Army. Palace guards were placed around the Imperial family's abode to keep them safe, but the situation deteriorated and by March 13th, most of the guards had deserted their posts. Nicholas set off for home, but he only reached as far as the town of Skov, where his train had been diverted. There, forced by his generals to capitulate, Nicholas II abdicated the throne on March 15, 1917, ending 304 years of Romanov rule. The Romanovs were taken prisoner and held captive beginning on March 21, 1917. They were first held at the Alexander Palace and guarded over by provisional government soldiers. Most of their servants were dismissed, but over 100 staff members, including ladies-in-waiting, cooks, valets, grooms, tutors, maids, and nurses, remained. Throughout their 483 days of captivity, Nicholas, Alexandra, and their five children waited to find out their ultimate fate. Of course, they were no longer the rulers of Russia, but they had many family members who held high offices and positions around the globe. They assumed that they would be exiled to one of these countries and taken in by their relatives. There were talks held to determine where to send the Romanovs, but many of these plans were ultimately abandoned for various reasons. The most obvious choice was to exile them to England. King George V, Nicholas's first cousin, was on the throne at that time, but he was not in favor of bringing the family to England and pressured his government to refuse them asylum. By the end of the summer, the new government wanted the Romanovs moved away from the capital to reduce the danger of their supporters trying to put them back into power. The family was then allowed to pack their things and with 42 servants in tow, moved to Tobolsk in Siberia. There they were held under guard in the governor's house. They would remain there for eight months. They were treated well and even became friendly with their guards. They had no visitors, and days were dull for the family who was unable to leave the grounds of the mansion, but they were safe and well-fed. In October of 1917, civil war broke out between the Bolshevik Red Army and a loosely organized group called the White Army, made up of liberals and monarchists. The battle lasted from October 17th to November 7th, when the Bolsheviks gained majority control over Russia. The revolutionaries now replaced the provisional government, and the Romanovs were now held under guard by Red Army soldiers. More restrictions were placed upon them, and they were provided only soldiers' rations to eat. In the spring of 1918, a new commander, Vasily Yakovlev, was sent from Moscow to oversee the Romanovs' captivity. When he arrived, 
he announced that they were to be immediately moved to another location. However, Alexei, now 13 years old, had become very ill, suffering from another internal hemorrhage. He was too sick to travel, but Yakovlev insisted Nicholas must be transferred right away. Alexandra elected to go with her husband, and on April 26th, the couple and a few servants left Tobolsk, leaving the girls and Alexei behind until he had recovered enough to travel. They were moved to Ekaterinburg, near the Ural Mountains. A home owned by a wealthy engineer had been commandeered by the new government to hold the Romanov family. It was given the title of the House of Special Purpose. A stockade fence and barbed wire were installed around the mansion. Sentry posts were constructed and guards with machine guns placed on the balconies. Windows were whitewashed and sealed shut, and the interior doors were also nailed shut. After they arrived, Alexandra sent word back to her daughters, warning them that all of their belongings had been searched. In her note, she told them that even their, quote, medicines had been searched. Unknown to their captors, this was a code word Alexandra had previously devised to use with her daughters should their communications be monitored. Before leaving the Alexander Palace, the family had hid a fortune in jewelry inside their belongings. Still in their possession over a year later were diamonds, pearls, sapphires, emeralds, rubies, and gold worth over $14 million. When Alexander referred to medicines, this was code for these jewels. While held in Tobolsk, the women had sewed the jewelry into their clothing to hide it. After their mother told them their belongings would be searched upon arriving in Ekaterinburg, they spent the time they had left in Tobolsk, sewing the remainder of the jewels into the linings of their undergarments, corsets, hats, belts, dresses, and behind buttons. On May 20th, the four girls and Alexei, along with the rest of their staff, were transferred to Ekaterinburg. As the train pulled into the remote town's train station, they were greeted by angry mobs who called for their heads and demanded to see the bloodsuckers. The girls would write in their diaries that this was the first time during their captivity that they ever feared for their lives. A few of the servants who'd arrived with the family were taken away as soon as they reached the town. Unknown to the Romanovs, some of them were immediately executed. Others were set free. The Romanovs were given the use of eight of the mansion rooms to be divided between Nicholas, Alexandra, their five children, and the staff that remained, which included Dr. Eugene Botkin, Alexandra's maid, Anna Demidova, Valet's Alexei Trupp, and Tereni Khimodorov, Cook Ivan Karatonov, and Leonid, the 14-year-old nephew of footman Ivan Sednev. Leonid had arrived at Ekaterinburg with his uncle, but Sednev was one of the servants who had been taken off and executed. Neither his nephew nor the family was made aware of his death. Anastasia would quickly discover that the special privileges afforded to the family previously were over. One day when she was attempting to get a bit of fresh air, she tried opening a window, and a guard fired his weapon in her direction. While awaiting word of their ultimate destination, Nicholas turned 50 years old. Alexandra was now 46, Tatiana 21, Marie 19, and Anastasia celebrated her 18th birthday in captivity. Once again, the girls won their captors over with their friendliness and charm. The guards grew to like the family very much. Describing Anastasia, some of the guards remarked she was friendly and full of life. They talked about her humor and how she enjoyed putting on comic mimes with the family dogs. Some of their captors had long conversations with the girls, who shared their hopes and dreams for the future. They shared that they hoped they might be allowed to live in England. Some of the soldiers would later confess that they, quote, would not mind so much if the Romanovs were allowed to escape, unquote. But the situation was becoming more dire for the family by the day. Other members of the Romanov family had been executed by the Bolsheviks, including Nicholas's brother, Grand Duke Michael Alexandrovich. On July 4th, a new commandant, Yakov Urovsky, arrived in Ekaterinburg to replace Alexander Avdeyev, who the Bolsheviks thought had been too soft on the Romanovs. Urovsky also replaced the original guards who'd become too friendly with the family. The commandant also made the Romanovs hand over any jewelry they were wearing and confiscated other valuables. However, he did not search through their clothing, so did not discover the hidden jewels. Urovsky instituted these restrictions while at the same time allowing the family to resume church services, something they had not been able to do for some time. He allowed two local priests to come to the home to perform mass for the family. Yurovsky also allowed two nuns to visit the family daily and bring them a few provisions and necessities. 
behind the scenes, the release of the family was being discussed. The plan was for the Bolsheviks to turn them over to be sent to extended family members in other parts of Europe. However, when an agreement couldn't be reached, the negotiations stalled. Meanwhile, the White Army was advancing on Ekaterinburg. They had been gaining ground in the region and far outnumbered the Red Army soldiers. Once the White Army took the city, the Romanovs would be rescued. On Tuesday, July 16th, with the White Army positioned only 20 miles away from Ekaterinburg, Commandant Yurovsky entered the house and told the kitchen boy Leonid that he was taking him to join his uncle. Leonid, of course, was still unaware that his uncle had been executed. He was told to gather his things and then was taken away. What happened to him I could not find in my research, but I assume it wasn't good. At 10.30 p.m., the Romanov family and their servants all retired to their rooms. The following day, when the next guards arrived for duty, the house was empty. The Romanovs had disappeared. Eight days later, on July 25th, the White Army took the city. When they arrived at the House of Special Purpose, they found no sign of the Romanovs. Just a few items of clothing and some possessions were found lying around the house. But when the soldiers entered the basement room of the home, its walls were discovered riddled with bullets, and blood was found on the floor and walls. It was assumed that the Romanovs had been executed by their Bolshevik captors. However, the Bolsheviks would never admit to killing the Romanov family. Later, they would only admit to the execution of Nicholas II. Their official story was that Empress Alexandra and the Tsarevich Alexei had been sent away from Ekaterinburg, but they did not say where. They made no mention of the Grand Duchesses. It's commonly believed that the Bolsheviks didn't want to be seen as the heartless murderers of women and children, so disavowed themselves of any responsibility for the deaths of the women and the Tsarevich. This would remain the official story of the Russian government until the 1920s. The White Army conducted an investigation, and in early 1919, would make their conclusion that the seven members of the Romanov family held in Ekaterinburg had all been executed on July 17, 1918, in the cellar of the House of Special Purpose by Urovsky and his soldiers. Because the bodies of Nicholas, Alexandra, and their five children were never found, rumors began early on that all or some of the Romanov imperial family had escaped. Before long, imposters began to come forward, claiming to be one of the Tsar's children who'd managed to escape execution. For some reason, Anastasia was the most popular of the Tsar's missing children to impersonate. Perhaps this was because she was the youngest daughter and was the least well-known to the public. The first person claiming to be one of the lost Romanovs emerged just months after their disappearance. In the fall of 1918, a young woman came forward to say that she was Anastasia, the youngest Grand Duchess. One of the Romanov's extended family members, Elena of Serbia, who'd been married to a Romanov before he was killed by the Bolsheviks, was enlisted to meet the woman to verify her claim. Upon seeing her, Elena denounced her as a fraud. Six months after the family vanished, a woman claimed to be the returned Empress Alexandra. She said she had been in hiding in a Serbian convent. Incredibly, she also brought along two children with her, who she said were her two youngest children, Anastasia and Alexei. Her claim was quickly debunked. Finally, a year after he was last seen, a young man emerged who said his true identity was Zarevich Alexei. He'd also been hiding in Serbia, he said. A former servant of the Romanovs was sent to verify his claim. Upon questioning him, it appeared that the young man did not understand either French or Russian. He was also taller and in much better health than the true Zarevich, the servant observed. The imposter's true identity was soon discovered. His name was Alexei Potziato. Sightings of the missing Romanov family members continued to be reported. Doctors and nurses claimed to have treated them. Others claimed that they'd fed or housed a beggar, only to later discover that they'd been one of the Romanovs. It was also reported that they had all been given sanctuary inside the Vatican and were being protected by the Pope. Over the years, many continued to debate whether Nicholas, Alexandra, the Tsarevich, and the Grand Duchesses were alive or dead. But in 1920, another woman would come forward claiming to be Anastasia Romanov. Her claim would be taken seriously and investigated thoroughly. Some would swear that she was the missing Grand Duchess, while others would call her a fraud. 
Romanov relatives, even some of those closest to the Tsar's family, would have difficulty deciding whether the woman was really Anastasia or an imposter. That fascinating story and the true fate of the Romanovs will be told in part two. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Remember that you don't have to wait a whole week to hear the second part of this story if you're a Patreon member. For early release and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus episodes and OUAC goodies sent to you in the mail, go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. And a special thank you to all you postal workers, mail carriers, and delivery persons. You are greatly appreciated, and we support you. You can find all the links for the show, including our Patreon, social media accounts, and our merchandise store on our website, truecrimepodcast.com. I also want to acknowledge our firefighters, first responders, and other emergency workers who are on the front lines right now fighting the dozens of wildfires in California and beyond. Thank you so much for working so hard to save our homes, national parks, and communities. If you'd like to find out how you can support the victims of the fires and the firefighters, I've included a link in the show notes with a list of organizations that can use your help. Thank you. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative and research assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music for the show was composed by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.